Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Word of God for our meditation this morning is today's Gospel from Luke chapter 3. And I'll read again these words. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. This is the Word of our God. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, your birth certificate, your state-issued driver's license or photo ID, your passport, all of these are legal documents that identify you. They confirm your unique identity. They tell others who you are. And you need them. I mean, if you want to drive a car or open a checking account, you need a form of ID. If you want to take out a mortgage or check into a hotel or just buy a six-pack of beer, you're going to need a way to identify yourself. It seems that even you can't go to the drugstore anymore and buy a package of Sudafed if you have a cold unless you can show them your photo ID and somehow assure them that you're not running a meth lab somewhere. You need that photo ID. It's hard to get by in life without some form of identification. Infinitely more important than your ability to identify yourself is the ability to identify your Savior. And make no mistake, my friends, there are lots of counterfeits out there. Many try to take our Savior's place and, and replace him in some way. And the devil, of course, is behind all of this. There is no lie that he won't tell to get us to trust in some person or something other than our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. The portion of God's word before us this morning cuts through all those lies of the devil and clearly identifies our Savior for us. In fact, the Spirit presents to us today three unique forms of ID for our Savior. First is the testimony of John, the forerunner. Then comes the Spirit's own anointing. And finally, the approving voice of the Father. And all of these witnesses, all of these forms of ID tell us exactly the same thing. This man is Christ, your substitute. Before we talk about our Savior's identity, my friends, we need to talk about our own. You know, usually when you show your form of ID, you are identifying yourself as a unique individual. I mean, as far as I know, and I'm sure that all of you hope, there are no other almost 48-year-old, very white guys living at 609 Waldo Boulevard in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, USA. When I use my ID, I identify myself as a unique individual. In that sense, I guess you could say I am unique. But my friends, in another very real sense, I am not unique at all. You know, in this day and age when so many people are trying to identify as something that they are not, I have to identify as a sinner. I have to. I don't have any choice in the matter because, you see, sin is my reality. And it's yours, too. The devil, of course, will do everything that he can to try and get you to minimize that fact. I mean, after all, you're not that bad of a person, right? In fact, compared to others, you're pretty great. You know, rapists and murderers and pedophiles and prostitutes and human traffickers and that kind of thing. Compared to them, you truly are a saint. And plus, just think of all the good things that you do. 
You're a fine, upstanding, law-abiding citizen. You work hard. You love your family. You try to control your temper and not drink too much. You don't speed. You don't cheat on your taxes. You go to church. You give to charity. You even help that elderly couple down the street with their yard work. Sounds good. But it won't hold up in court. Not God's court, anyway. You might think to yourself, I'm better, I'm in better shape before God than that pedophile or that human trafficker, but you're not. And neither am I. You see, our God doesn't just ask for pretty good. Our God demands perfection. God doesn't tell us to compare ourselves to the worst of criminals that we can find out there. He says, compare yourself to my holy standards. And my friends, we simply do not measure up, not even close. In thoughts and desires, in words and deeds, every single day, we fall flat on our faces, far, far short of the glory of our God. And because of that, we deserve to burn eternally in unquenchable fire. I am so very glad... So very happy that I don't have to end with that statement. I'm happy to report, my dear fellow sinners, that we have a substitute and a Savior. One who took our place and took away all of our sins. He's very clearly identified for us in God's Word. John identifies him for us today. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now John had a golden opportunity here to engage in some identity theft. The people looked at him this eccentric guy with his strange wardrobe of a, of a camel's hair coat and his weird diet of locusts and wild honey and his weird location out there in the wilderness. But they heard his powerful message and they put all these things together and said, boy, this guy sure looks like a prophet. He reminds us of Elijah. Maybe he's the one. Maybe this one is the promised Messiah. And John looked at them all and said, nope, not me. I'm not fit to carry Messiah's sandals. John continued to describe him. He said, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, which is a reference to the miracle that would happen on the great day of Pentecost. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And I suppose after reading those words, we probably need a little bit of a lesson in first century farming technique. Threshing is the process of separating the stalks of grain, whether it's barley or wheat or whatever it is, into its parts so that it can be used. And how they did that in Jesus' day is they had something called a threshing sledge, which was basically a heavy piece of wood that looked kind of like a sled. Underneath it, um, they would have pieces of bone and shell and sharp stones, they would probably have one of the children from the family sit on that and they would drag it behind a donkey or a mule or an ox or something like that and they'd run it over the wheat in order to break it up into its parts. And then the farmer would take basically his pitchfork and he would toss those materials up into the wind and that breeze would carry the chaff and the, the straw away, blow it to the side. The wheat, the kernels of wheat which were heavier, would fall to the ground. The chaff and the straw could be burned up and the wheat could be collect, collected and milled and obviously made into flour and bread. 
In a sense, you could say that our Lord Jesus is the divine thresher. Your relationship with Jesus determines where you will spend your eternity. Those who reject him as Savior are like that chaff and straw that are blown away and finally burned up. And those who by God's grace alone receive him as Lord and Savior are like those kernels of wheat that are kept and preserved for good use. They are gathered into the eternal barn of the Lord's heavenly kingdom. Now John's point in telling us all this is very clear. He's saying, don't be chaff. In other words, don't put your trust in me. If you put your trust in me, you're going to be blown away like the chaff. Uh, You're going to be burned up. That's what's going to happen. No, put your trust in Jesus Christ. He is your Savior. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This man, and not me, is Christ, your substitute. So that's one form of identification for our Savior. Let's look at another, the Spirit's own anointing. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And the first sentence that I just read is rather surprising. We know that baptism is all about the forgiveness of sins, and so it makes sense that a lot of people were coming out to John at the Jordan River to be baptized by him to have their sins washed away. And Jesus joined them. Wait, what? Why would Jesus join them? Why would the sinless Son of God, a lamb without blemish or defect, submit to a sinner's baptism? You know, I think the Apostle Paul has a good answer for us. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. You ever heard the old phrase, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater? That old phrase comes from a custom that to our 21st century sensibilities seems really pretty gross. In the Middle Ages, people didn't bathe very much, but if if they did decide to scrub up a bit, which happened maybe once a year or so, the whole family got involved. Everybody had a bath. And they had a specific order that these things were done. The men went first, of course, and then the women, and then the children and little babies. And here's something you have to remember. Throughout the entirety of this process, they did not change the bath water. And so by the time little Johnny had his turn in the tub, as you can imagine, that water was incredibly foul. And yes, it would be easy to lose a little one in the bath water. Jesus got into our foul bath water. He willingly climbed into the tub filled with the filth of our sins, the filth washed off of us in our own baptisms. At his baptism, our Lord Jesus identified himself as the substitute of sinners. As Isaiah wrote, seven centuries before our Lord's baptism, he was numbered with the transgressors. And confirming his identity as the Messiah and the sinner's substitute is none other than God's eternal spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity. You know how you can tell that an event is important by who shows up at it? For example, 
If the President of the United States shows up at a state funeral of some sort, you can tell that was a very important dignitary or world leader because the President just didn't send his Vice President to take his place. He showed up himself. My friends, the Spirit's presence at our Lord's baptism tells us a lot about the importance of this event. The Spirit himself took on bodily form and came down as a dove. If you were watching that day, you would have seen what looked like a dove come and land on Jesus. But of course, not just the dove, but the Spirit himself there to confirm the Savior's identity and to do even more than that. He anointed our Lord Jesus with power. In our first lesson this morning, we heard about the anointing of David. Uh, Samuel took a horn, an animal horn, that was filled with very precious olive oil from the first pressing, and then also aromatic resins and perfumes. And then he took that and he poured it on David's head so that that oil, that fragrant oil, ran down on it from his head into his beard, onto his robe. There'd be no mistaking that David was the one chosen to be the king of Israel. You could smell him probably from a mile away. Well, my friends, the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus. And this is what we read in the book of Acts. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. You see, the Spirit was there to empower God's Son, who is truly human, to carry out his very difficult work of being the sinner's substitute, of living perfectly and suffering and dying for the sins of the world. My friends, our God wants us to be absolutely certain that Jesus is the one. And so he gives us one more form of identity to take away any doubt that there may be. He himself spoke up. A voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Reviews have become a big part of our daily life these days. For example, you choose which electric kettle you're going to purchase from Amazon, largely based on the reviews that you read. If something gets one star, you're probably not going to buy it. And you choose which hotel to stay in based on what people are saying about it on TripAdvisor. Yelp reviews help you to pick a good place for Italian food. God reviewed his son. He gushed over his son. He gave him five perfect stars and two enthusiastic thumbs up. The big smile on his face, he said, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus was just beginning his public ministry. That's something that started at his baptism. Just beginning his public ministry as the substitute of sinners. But God, of course, could see all of history. He could see that ministry as complete. He saw Jesus' perfect life in place of sinners, a life of flawless, sinless obedience to God's law, and he said, I am well pleased. He saw Jesus' sacrifice for sin, the holy blood of the God-man that he shed on the cross and said, I am well pleased. He saw Jesus' resurrection on the third day, a resurrection that guarantees our own resurrection, guarantees that we are God's forgiven children. And he said, Son, I love you, and with you I am well pleased. My friends, that enthusiastic five-star review allows our God to look at you and me and also give us two thumbs up. Remember what our Lord's baptism teaches us. It teaches us that Jesus is our substitute. So what he did counts for us. God counts his perfect life 
as our perfect life. His payment for sin as our payment for sin. God sees the resurrection of his son as just the first in a long line of resurrected sons and daughters. God looks at you and me, his children adopted in baptism, his children members of his family through faith, and he says with a smile on his divine face, you are my son. You are my daughter. With you I am well pleased. Yes, even with you. My friends, there can be no doubt about it. We've seen his ID. We've viewed his credentials. His identity is confirmed. This man is Christ, our substitute. This man, standing in the River Jordan, is our one and only Savior. And my friends, through him, we have pardon and we have peace with our God now and forever. Thanks be to God. Amen.